0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Tonight we are going to look at Psalm 69 and Psalm 70. Psalm 69 is sort of long. Psalm 70 is quite short. So we should be able to pack them both in this evening. Psalm 69 repeats common themes that we have already seen in the book of Psalms. It is David in an imprecatory way, crying out to God for deliverance yet again, as he's going through his difficulties, his trials, his distresses. But what's really interesting about Psalm 69 is how often little phrases from it appear in the New Testament. It shows up a lot, because apparently Psalm 69 was well-known to the apostles and to the New Testament writers. So as we're reading through it, you're going to see these themes of David again saying, save me, O God, and the waters and the deep mire and enemies and liars, and I'm in trouble. And then every once in a while, he's going to say things that don't seem to really apply to him. And yet the New Testament authors are going to pick up those very things and say, this applies to Christ. So there is a Christological bent to Psalm 69. There is a prophetic, messianic bent to Psalm 69. When I was young, I had the impression that the Psalms were just pretty and nice kind of stories or poetry. Usually you'd see pictures of Jesus carrying baby lambs and a couple lines from Psalm 23, and that was pretty much my impression as a young Lutheran boy, that when I got to the Psalms, they would all just be nice, pretty, uplifting poetry. But as I got older and started reading through the Psalms, and I hope you're getting a feel for it now, especially these first two books of the Psalms, David is having a difficult time. David has had a difficult life. The Psalms are about pain. The psalms are about the difficulties of his life, the betrayals, the having to run for his life. And when I discovered that, I found it very reassuring because we're going to see it again yet tonight, that this is David, the man after God's own heart, that this is King David who has the Davidic covenant and promises from God. This is David who heard right from God through the prophet Nathan This is David who, when he was just a kid, Samuel identified him as the one God had chosen to be the king of Israel. This is David who, though he sinned terribly, still he was told that he wasn't going to die for his sin, that God was going to forgive him. This is David who went through all those things. You would think, well, that's an incredibly blessed life. What we know for sure is that's at least the life of a man who is in real, genuine contact with the God and maker of everything, who chose him and put him on the throne and protected him and lifted him up. And when he sinned, God said, I gave you so much. And if that weren't enough, I'd given you much more. So you would think that's a very blessed life. And yet his life is absolutely riddled with trouble and pain and trials and betrayals and backstabbers and running for his life, his own children betraying him, his own household being turned upside down, and yet he persists because he has a promise from God. And I just found that very, very comforting because if you're anything like me, and again, I hope to God you're not, but if you're anything like me, you know what the difficulties and the trials of life can be like. Yesterday, one of the fellows I was talking to at the pastor's breakfast made a very nice comment to me. And he said, you seem like a man who's at peace. I thought, well, that's a nice thing to say. Afterwards, when he walked away, I thought, no, I'm just a man who's been beaten into submission. And, and I've just had to rely on God through all of it. And that is very like what David has been through. David, when he reaches the old age, is able to look back over his life and say, it's been really hard, but God brought me through it. I got all the way through it. Through all these years of GCA, you know, coming up in June is our 22nd anniversary. And during that time, we've seen small churches rise and fall here in Smyrna. And we're still here. Sometimes we're larger numbers. Sometimes we're smaller numbers. But we're still here. And we still continue on despite the hardships, the ups and the downs. And that, again, David's life encourages our life here at GCA. That just because it's hard, just because it's difficult, just because people try to shut us down, people have tried to get us to shut up. And yet we survive by God's good grace. And it's good to know that the troubles of life don't take us out of the good graces of God, the same way that the troubles of David's life didn't take him out of his relationship and the good graces of God. Rather, the troubles and the trials of life are just part of the process, proven by the fact that David, who has these promises from God and has this one-on-one relationship with God, nevertheless goes through difficulties and trials the same way we do. And I find that really comforting. Because I think all of us at some point in life have heard ourselves say, Save me, O oh God, help me, save me, O oh God, for the waters have threatened my life. This is a psalm that is written to the choir director according to Shoshanim, which is apparently a reference to a melody or a song, it's a musical notation. We know that it's from David because it says of David after that. So it is David crying out for help from God. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire or deep mud and there is no foothold. I don't know if any of you have ever gotten your feet caught in mud, but it's real easy then as you're trying to climb out to slip and fall because there's just no sure footing. That's what David is describing here. I have sunk in the deep mire. There's no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. Okay, so none of those things are literal. David was not underwater, and he was not standing in mud. But he has used all these alliterations in order to say, this is what my life is like right now. I have no security. I have no surety. I feel like I'm sinking. Verse three, I am weary with my crying. That means he's been crying a long time. Whatever the trouble is, whatever the trial is that he's going through, it has caused him to cry out to God for a long time, and he's just basically sick and tired of being sick and tired. And he's weary with his crying. And his throat is parched because he's been crying so much. My eyes fail. Because I wait for my God. And so he's been waiting a long time for this deliverance, whatever it is. He's been crying to God. He's been praying to God for a long time. And he hasn't been delivered. Anybody ever been there? Mm -hmm. We've all gone through difficulties in life where you just say, I'm sick of it. I don't know how much more of this I can do, God. God. I don't know how much more I can put up with it, and I'm tired of crying, and I'm tired of hurting, and I'm tired of being afraid, and I'm, I'm just tired. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head, and those who would destroy me are powerful. Being wrongfully my enemies. In other words, I haven't given them any cause to dislike me, and yet there are those who are trying to destroy me, and they're powerful people. And they are wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. In other words, I didn't harm them, and yet I'm the one who has to make it right. I'm the one who's always trying to make peace. I'm the one who's trying to restore relationships. And I'm not the guilty party. Verse 5, O God, it is thou who dost know my foolishness, my folly. And you know, because my wrongs are not hidden from you. You know what I've done. You know my sins. You know my trespasses and my folly against you. And you know my wrongs, they're not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. This is really interesting. David is king as a representative of God's people, Israel. He is so aware of his own sins. He is so aware of his own shortfallings that he says, God, you know my shortfallings. You know my sins. You know my rebellions. My prayer is that you're patient with the people who I am ruling over so that they themselves don't have to be ashamed of me because of my foolishness, my falling. I'm running away. People are trying to kill me. I'm crying out to you. Don't hold this against the rest of your people. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me. O Lord God of hosts, may those who seek thee not be dishonored because of me, O God of Israel. So David is very, very aware of his sinfulness, very aware of his debt before God. And yet, when he's in trouble, when he's going through trials, when people are trying to kill him, when he has no sure standing, who does he cry out to? He has nowhere else to go. Can you relate? Even though we know our shortfallings, even though we know our sinfulness, even though we know the silly things that run through our stupid little brains, we nevertheless know that when it's time for help, when it's time to be delivered, when it's time to be redeemed, there's nowhere to go but God. And then you have to stand before God with all of your filth and say to him, you you know, you know me. You know what I've done. You know who I am. And nevertheless, I'm crying out to you because where else am I going to go? And so I beg you, deliver me despite me. And don't let those who are also seeking you become dishonored because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake, I have borne reproach and dishonor covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers, and an alien to my mother's sons. As you may recall, David was the youngest of many sons, all the sons of Jesse. Now here he is saying that even his brothers have turned against him. And so this gives you a sense of how alone David is, how desperate he feels, that he has become alien to his own mother's sons, and then... Even though the temple does not stand yet, even though the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent at this point, even though he has brought the Ark of the Covenant from Hebron to Jerusalem, God has not allowed him to build the temple. He has started collecting the stuff that is going to be required to build the temple but it's Solomon his son that is going to build the temple and yet in order to express his zeal for God the way that he expresses his desire for God despite his own sinfulness despite his own rebellion the way he expresses it is he says for the zeal for your house has consumed me I want to build your temple I want to construct, for your own glory, a temple of majesty here in Jerusalem. And that consumes me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, the people who hate you because I am your king, they now hate me. Each half of that verse, verse 9, comes up in the New Testament. So let's go look at it real quick, because it's very interesting, the context that they show up in. The zeal of your house has consumed me. Turn over to John 2 for just a second. I will give you just a moment to get there. I'm going to start reading at verse 13 of John 2. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers were seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And look at verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for thy house has consumed me. Now, isn't that interesting? Because when David wrote it, David was saying, I'm in trial, I'm in trouble, I'm in difficulty, and yet I cry out to you for deliverance, and you know how much I long for you and for your glory because the zeal for your house, which isn't built yet, the desire to build your house has absolutely consumed me. And it is when Jesus is cleansing the temple and driving out the money changers that the apostles remember, oh yeah, in Psalm 69, though they wouldn't have called it that, but back there in the Psalms, David wrote that, didn't he? The zeal of your house has consumed me. So they take it as a messianic prediction. They see it as something that Jesus is fulfilling and satisfying by the fact that Jesus would drive people out of the temple for abusing and misusing the temple and turning it into a den of thieves and a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for thy house has consumed me. But then back in the Psalms, the second half of that same verse says, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Turn to Romans 15 for a moment. In Romans 15, I'll just start reading at verse 1. Now we who are strong, we just talked about this this past Sunday, the strong and the weak. Now, we who are strong ought to bear with the weakness of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell on me. Now, when David wrote it, He was writing it in the first person and saying the zeal of your house has consumed me and the people who hate you hate me. And that's why I'm crying out to you to deliver me. Paul picks that up, applies it to Christ and says the sins of all Christ's people fell on Christ And that is the demonstration that Christ's great humility was not out to please himself, but instead to give himself for the good of others. Therefore, Paul would say, be like that, bear the burdens of others, lift each other up, because that's what Christ did. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. So this psalm is really well known by the disciples and the New Testament writers that they would pick half a verse and in both cases the apostles, the disciples and Paul here all applied it to Christ. So we have New Testament authority and attestation that this psalm is Christological. That this psalm is really pointing forward to Christ. And that I think helps us to go backwards in the psalm and start reading, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life, and I've sunk deep in the mire, and there is no foothold, and I've come into deep waters, and the flood overwhelms me, and I'm weary with my crying, and my throat is parched, and my eyes fail while I wait for my God. Apparently, there is a Christological bent to that, including phrases like, My throat is parched. Because in this same psalm, David is going to get to the crucifixion and the fact that they offered him gall to drink. So there are all these Christological connections going on here. In fact, when it says, those who hate me hate me without a cause, even Jesus himself said, they're going to hate you because they hated me. And all of that without a cause, without a reason... And here David has said that about himself, and it's all pointing forward to Christ to come. Verse 10 When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. In other words, even when I did things that were holy, righteous, people hated me for it. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. They made fun of me when I was repenting before you. Those who sit in the gate, that's the place where the elders and judges would sit. Those who sit in the gate talk about me. And I am a song of the drunkards. (laughs) Even the drunks sing bad things about me. David, he's not a good guy. I don't know that they sang that song, but... I'm a song among the drunkards. Okay, that's his situation. Across the board, that's where he's at. And he knows his sinfulness. And who does he cry to? Who does he go to? Who is he looking to for deliverance? Starting at verse 13, he says, But as for me, my prayer is to thee, O Yahweh. And at an acceptable time, O God, In the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with thy saving truth. Answer me with your truth. You know my situation. You know my integrity. You know that I love you. You know that the zeal that I have, you know the zeal that I have for your house. And so you, and I love this phrase, in your acceptable time, you come help me. That's a tough prayer to pray, because we we think, well, I've prayed to God. I'm crying out to God. Where's the deliverance? It's kind of like the old joke, you you never ask God for patience, because he'll teach you patience. And so here is David saying, Despite my situation, despite those who hate me without a cause, despite all of those who talk against me and sing against me, even when I'm doing righteous things, even when I'm fasting, even when I'm wearing sackcloth and repenting before you, nevertheless, I'm a reproach to them. I'm a song for drunkards. But despite all that, for me, my prayer is always to you, O Lord, Because at an acceptable time, according to your timetable, not according to my timetable, but according to your acceptable time, in the greatness of your loving kindness, you will answer me with your saving truth. Now, you will remember a moment ago, he said that his feet were sunk into a deep mire. Verse 14 says, deliver me from this mire. And do not let me sink in it. Don't let this be my destruction. I'm not on any sure footing right now. But I'm waiting for you because I know you are true. I know you are faithful. And in your good time, you're going to deliver me from this mire so that I don't sink into it. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me. And may the deep not swallow me up, and may the pit not shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from thy servant, for I am distress. Answer me quickly. So David is perfectly willing to say, if it were up to me, you'd have answered me already. If it were up to me, you'd have been here last week. If it were up to me, but nevertheless, according to your good time, according to your plan, he's aware that sovereign God is taking him through all of these things for a purpose. And yet he prays to God, deliver me. And I hope it's soon. Okay, this is a really good example of how to pray to God. Praying. God, deliver me. Do it now. Heal this, whatever it is. I'm in pain. Even though you know me, you know my sins, you know my transgressions, you know that if it weren't for your grace and loving kindness, I'd have no right to come to you. Nevertheless, I come and I pray to you, where else am I going to go? Deliver me. And then just like Jesus ended, David seems to be saying, but your will be done. According to your good timing. If it were up to me to be now, but answer me, God. Don't let me sink into this pit. Answer me, O Yahweh, for your sake, because I know of your loving kindness. I know of your grace. I know the kind of God you are. And knowing that about you for your own sake, not for mine, I'm a sinner. I've transgressed you. But for your sake, answer me, O Lord, because your loving kindness is good. And according to the greatness of your own compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. Buy me back. Pay whatever price is necessary, but buy me back. Thou dost know my reproach, and my shame, and my dishonor. You know what I'm going through. You know that all my adversaries, they're all before you. You know who they are, and you know why they hate me. You know what I'm going through right now, so it's all in your hands. Verse 20, reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I look for sympathy, and there's none. And I look for comforters, and I found none. That's people for you. So where else is David going to go? Back to God again. Now, in describing the fact that his friends have turned against him, that he has found no sympathy, that he has found no comfort. It is in that context that in verse 21, he says, They also gave me gall or a poison for my food and for my drink. They gave me vinegar to drink. In other words, they gave me bad food and bad drink. They're trying to poison me, they're trying to kill me off. Turn to Matthew 27. Because if those words resonated with you, these are the same things that were said when Jesus was on the cross. Matthew 27, I'm going to start reading at verse 33. When they had come to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall. Okay, now there's no indication really that anybody ever gave gall to David. And yet in describing how he got no sympathy, how there were no comforters, there was nobody among his friends or associates who cared what he was going through, he described it the same way he said, I'm sinking in mud and the flood is over me. He described their lack of sympathy as just the opposite. They give me gall to eat and they give me vinegar to drink for my thirst. I don't think David knew that that was Christological or messianic at that moment. And yet it was perfectly fulfilled when Jesus was on the cross, when he was thirsty, and they gave him wine mingled with gall to drink. And when he tasted it, he was unwilling to drink it because it was being used as an anesthetic. And he refused to be anesthetized. He took the full wrath of God. Turn to John 19 for just a second, because John elaborates on this a little bit more. John 19, I'm going to start reading at verse 28. John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop. They brought it up to his mouth. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. Now, very interesting. This same event where they're giving him wine mixed with gall. They do that because he has said, I am thirsty, the same way that David said his throat was parched. And John writes that he did that in order to fulfill the scripture. And it's just a little verse in the middle of a psalm that you could read right past and think that it's just David's complaint against his unfaithful friends, against his Faithless friends against people who had no sympathy, people who were not comforters, who gave him gall for his food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And for Jesus' thirst, when he said, I thirst, John said, that's to fulfill the scripture. And they end up giving him sour wine, which is vinegar. Isn't that fascinating? The things that don't leap out, out of the Psalms, don't scream, oh, this is prophetic. And yet... The New Testament authors, by the Holy Spirit, can go back and grab these pieces and say, look at this again. Look at the details again. These are all pointing to Christ. You can understand why Jesus, on the Emmaus Road, talking to the two disciples, you can see why he, starting at Moses and the law, it says he showed them everything in the Old Testament that had to do with him. Things like this that you and I would probably read right past and say, I don't see the connection. And yet Jesus just keeps pointing out these connections. They're all the way through the New Testament. Verse 22, it's going to happen again. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. Okay, now David is talking against his enemies, the people who reproach him, The people who give him no sympathy, the people who give him no comfort, and against them may their table become a snare and a trap. Turn to Romans 11. Because Paul picks up that little verse in order to say that Jesus, again, satisfies Scripture. (laughs) Romans 11. I'm looking for verse 9. Well, let's start reading at verse 7. Because that's the context of it. What then? That which Israel was seeking for, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to not see and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. So when talking about God hardening and saving portions of Israel and showing how this is God's divine plan for his chosen people he yanks that verse from David from Psalm 69 out and says that that's happening because David already wrote let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them and when David said it he wasn't talking about anything like that he was talking about his enemies who were not sympathetic to him. And praying to God that God would make their table a snare. And when they were in peace, that it would become a trap. These are the kind of things that I find just absolutely fascinating. But these are the kind of things that you and I would never figure out had it not been for Holy Spirit-driven New Testament authors going back and pointing at it. And saying, now look closer at this. Because this is really about Christ. When you're reading the Old Testament, there are so many things. Well, you know I don't like allegory. But there are so many things in the Old Testament that you read that have those echoes until the New Testament. It's all the entirety of the Old Testament is all driving you to one conclusion, to one culmination. And that's Christ. And that's being demonstrated in this psalm (laughs) that the New Testament authors seem so very familiar with and how they keep picking up pieces of it and pointing at it and saying, this is about Christ. Pay attention. Verse 23. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them. And may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. And may none dwell in their tents. Now, if this does have a Christological overlay to it, those words should sound familiar because Jesus ends up saying to the leaders in Jerusalem, your house lays desolate. And so here is David praying that their house would ultimately, their camp, would become desolate. And the fulfillment of that is Jesus announcing to Jerusalem the same way that Paul picked this up and made it about Israel. Then Jesus said to the leaders in Jerusalem, your house is going to lay desolate before you. And certainly that happened in 70 AD. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him who you yourself have smitten. How Christ-like is that? Because they, let's apply this to Christ, the Jews, with wicked hands killed the prince of life. That's what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. They ended up persecuting him whom God himself smote. What's the song you like so much? Stricken, Smitten smitten smitten, and afflicted. And it's God who did the smiting and the affliction. And so David applies it to himself, but it has these deep Christological undertones to it. They have persecuted him who you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you wounded. Really interesting language. Do thou add iniquity to their iniquity. In other words, hold them guilty. Hold them entirely guilty. And may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. In other words, don't allow them to continue living. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted. And I am in pain. May thy salvation, O God, set me securely on high. And I will praise the name of God with song, and I shall magnify him with thanksgiving. Several times we've seen David say that thanksgiving and a humble heart before God is more precious to God than the blood of bulls or the blood of goats. He says the same thing here. It isn't sacrifice that God requires, but a humble and contrite heart. I will magnify God with thanksgiving, and it will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. The humble have seen it and are glad. And you who seek God, let your heart awaken, revive, live. For the Lord hears the needy, and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it, and the descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. Okay, so big overview of this psalm. From where David started, I'm in deep, deep trouble. You know my transgressions against you. You know who I am. You know what I'm like. And people hate me, and I got nowhere to go but you. He went from there all the way to let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. And what happened between I'm desperate and I praise God? in between was all this Christological stuff. And that's what makes all the difference between desperation and feeling secure, is remembering what Christ did and the finished work of Christ. And that is the outline of this soul from David's desperation to all these Christological references to finally being able to say, let heaven and earth praise him the seas and everything that moves in them. And then finally, the declaration that Israel is going to be restored by God in keeping with all the promises God has made to Israel, in keeping with the Davidic covenant, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell therein, possess it and the descendants of his servants will inherit it And they who love his name will dwell in it, in Zion. Okay, so the New Testament authors gave tremendous attestation to earlier portions of this psalm. Do you think the rest of the psalm is true? Sure. Has to be. It's not like they said, well, this part right here, this is good. But then later David doesn't know what he's talking about. Instead the same way that the promises Christologically earlier in this psalm are valid, this promise that God is going to save Zion, that he's going to build the cities of Judah, that they're going to dwell there and possess it, and he's talking about generations after himself because the descendants of his servants are ultimately going to inherit it, and those who love the name of God are all going to dwell in it. That kind of has new Jerusalem overtones to it. Pretty fascinating psalm, if you ask me. Go ahead, ask me. Is it fascinating? It is. Thank you. I'm so glad you asked. Let's read Psalm 70. There's nothing complicated about Psalm 70. It's for the choir director, a psalm of David, for you to remember. It's for a memorial. It's just to remind you. Oh, God, hasten to deliver me. Oh, Lord, hasten to my help. Let those be ashamed and humiliated who seek my life. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha, like they've discovered something bad about David. Okay, that's the first half of the psalm right there. The first half of it is God praying for deliverance the second half of it is and praise God let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in thee and let those who love thy salvation say continually despite your circumstances that's why I started out by emphasizing David's circumstances were bad They were really difficult, probably more difficult than most of us have dealt with in our lifetimes. At least we haven't had to run for our lives because our son was out to kill us. At least I haven't yet, and I have a son, but I keep my eye on him because you (laughs) never, you know, yeah. And yet despite that, look at his declaration, let those who love thee, And those who love thy salvation say constantly, all the time, regardless of what else is going on, let God be magnified. Let him be expressed extremely. But I am afflicted and needy, so hasten to me, O God. That juxtaposition between help me, God, I'm afflicted and I'm needy, hasten to me, God. You are my help. You are my deliverer. Oh, Lord, do not delay. Juxtaposed against, nevertheless, let everybody say, let God be magnified. It's easy to draw from that very short little soul that whatever you're going through, whatever the difficulties of your life are, still, regardless, magnify the Lord. Despite your circumstances, despite how you may feel, even as you're crying to God for deliverance, magnify the Lord. Sing and be glad in the Lord. And you'll have what Paul calls that peace that passes understanding. So, what do you come away with tonight? So, what do you come away with tonight? Hopefully, you come away with the demonstration that David, the man after God's own heart, lived a life very much like ours, difficult, hard life. And he had to cry out to God for help and deliverance, and people were no help, and people were no sympathy, people were no comfort to him. And he ended up in a place where he was magnifying God yet again. One more time, we've seen David do this so often, where he starts out... I'm in trouble, deliver me, God. And by the end of the psalm, he gets all the way to praise God anyway. Here he has said it again. Magnify God, even as you're crying to him, I'm needy, I need you, deliver me. And nevertheless, God deserves to be glorified and praised. And what made the difference between help me and magnify God, what made the difference was Christ right in the center. And that is true of our lives as well, at least it should be. That as we go through the difficulties of this life, if we remember who God is and what he has done and that he has sent his son, that will drive us to glorify God despite our circumstances.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.